You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 31. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today's episode is particularly special. We're talking with the subject of our documentary, Bluebird Man, Al Larson. Al is truly an inspirational figure. This is true for myself. Al has taught me about the importance of thinking long-term and sticking with a project, and this has changed my approach towards conservation. I'm definitely not the only one who has been inspired by Al's story, however. We've received this type of feedback countless times at all of the many screenings that we've held for the film. At a recent screening here in Boise, Idaho, that I convinced Al to attend with me, he received a prolonged standing ovation from a sold-out crowd of close to 800 people when it was announced that he was in attendance. After the film, there was a line reaching all the way out the theater of people who just wanted to shake his hand and thank him for his work. So what is so inspiring about Al? Well, at the age of 93, he continues to monitor and maintain over 300 nest boxes for bluebirds across southwestern Idaho. He places U.S. Fish and Wildlife leg bands on every bluebird nestling that he monitors before they leave the nest. And over the past 35 years, he has banded close to 30,000 nestling bluebirds. He's developed his monitoring protocol entirely on his own and has accumulated an extremely valuable 35-year data set on the nesting success of bluebirds. And yet, he dropped out of school after completing the 8th grade. I could go on, but I'll save it for the interview. We recorded this interview after a trip out to Al's Bluebird Trail in the Owyhee Mountains, during which we banded several broods of nesting bluebirds. Let's jump in. Well, first of all, I guess I appreciate you putting up with uh, one one last interview. <laughs> I know you put up with a lot while we were uh, shooting for the documentary. Um, I don't even remember how many interviews we recorded with you, but it was a lot. Um, so well, I appreciate you doing this. Well, I kind of got used to it. <laughs> So I, I tried to come up with some questions here that, you know, we didn't have the opportunity to, to talk about in, in any of those interviews we did for the documentary. Um, so we'll see how I did. Uh, the first one I have for you is, I, I guess I'm curious to know where your first interest in wildlife came from. Maybe an early experience that sparked that interest in wildlife. Positive experience or negative? Uh, either, either. <laughs> I don't know if I told you the story or not. Um, when I was four years old, we were moving from California to Idaho. And uh, in those days, people camped out. They'd have a mattress rolled up on the fender of their car, suitcases tied onto the running boards, well, we stopped at a place along a, a little creek, a small river, and uh, put up for the night. There was another party along with us, traveling with us. And during the evening, when they were uh, cleaning up after supper, they went down to the creek to get some water 
and they heard a, a rattlesnake down there. Well, they come back and said that there was a rattlesnake down there. Well, fine. <clears throat> Next morning, I was instructed to go down and get some water out of the creek. And no way was I going to go down there with a rattlesnake down there. <laughs> and so uh, it looked like they were going to force me to go down there. So I took off running through the sagebrush. Imagine a forty or a four-year-old kid running through the sagebrush and your parents are after him. They caught me. Down came my bib overalls and they used a piece of sagebrush to whale me because I because I uh, wouldn't do what they wanted. But hey, I was a scared kid. That's probably my first experience of uh, wildlife. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first one I can remember anyway. But uh, in a more positive note, uh, um, I probably got interested in in wildlife, uh, uh, preservation of wildlife, uh, about the time that I got involved with Audubon. And uh, I think maybe Audubon might have influenced me somewhat. I was interested in in birds. I already had a, a bird book, a 1946 edition of Peterson's Bird Guide to the Birds, Western Birds. So t- tell me a little bit about um, about your educational background. Um, you're someone who is, you know, I guess in, in, involved in science, right? And, and, and folks generally think of people who do science as people who have, you know... A college uh, degree. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, I was an average student in in grade school, and when my mother died, <clears throat> um, I was left with my older brothers. My stepdad took off and left me with my older brothers to take care of me, and I still had the sixth grade of school to to uh, finish the year that my mother died. And as time went on, I was getting worse and worse grades. And finally, a welfare worker came around to the house and was checking on my living conditions, welfare, I guess. Probably the teacher alerted the welfare department that I had a problem. And when my brother got got wind of the welfare worker there, he uh, yanked me out of school, out of Boise, and took me up into the Jordan Valley country. Uh, So I didn't finish the sixth grade. But um, uh, as time went on, uh, I got into the country school, the Pleasant Valley School out of Jordan Valley. And as luck would have it, the uh, the, the teacher, well, she, she had 
nine students, including me, with five different grades. And she didn't have a sixth grade, but she had a seventh. So she said she'd try me out in the seventh with, along with the other student. And I caught right on, got my seventh grade uh, behind me and went on to the eighth grade. When I graduated from the eighth grade, I went to work on a cattle ranch and uh, was a cowboy for several years. And from there, I went up to the Summit Flat area in Boise County and worked in the mines. War broke out in Europe and my brother and I left the mines and went over to Seattle and went to work for Boeing Aircraft. Um, I got a, a job in uh, the router department and worked my way up to be a routerman. But come springtime, uh, it was after Pearl Harbor, come springtime, uh, we got the yearning to come back to Idaho and and uh, go up to Summit Flats. But there I was growing up, a young man, up in his 20s and still only had an eighth grade education. Well, at that time I had to register for the draft because I had turned 20. And shortly after I got a notice to show up for a physical exam. So I went down and joined the Marine Corps. But after the war, uh, we had the GI Bill. So I enlisted in college as a student for uh, mechanical engineering. But I did pretty good in, in the first two quarters of school, except for chemistry. I uh, lacked a background in chemistry, and so I was monitoring the third quarter of chemistry and was taking the third quarter of whatever math and and uh, English or grammar, whatever you want to call it. Then I decided that I would rather do physical work than sit there in class, so I, I uh, dropped out of college uh, with less than a year. So after a brief day in, in college, you might say it's uh, uh, an, uh, an education on, on the job of uh, doing my hobbies. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting that, I mean, you, you definitely don't fit this this sort of stereotype for a scientist, um, right. you know, but at the same time, I mean, you have been collecting this, this data on, on bloopers for over 35 years. Um, I guess, I guess I wonder, I mean, do, do you think of yourself as a scientist? No, no. <laughs> I just feel like uh, an ordinary guy that gets up and pulls his pants on one leg at a time in the morning and, and, uh, just goes about the daily routine. <laughs> um, I, I'm not collecting scientific data for any particular reason, except that I feel like I'd like to 
record what I know for my own sake. But I find that uh, other people have an interest in what I've collected. <laughs> so I'm wondering how you developed your monitoring protocol for the Bluebird boxes. Uh, you know, how, how did you decide what data you were going to collect? Well, I guess uh, it probably started out that I just wanted to keep a record of what I see in the box. Um, and some of the terminology I use is very basic. I call the, the little birds baby birds. I call them nestlings now. Um <laughs> Uh, it, it was very basic. I may have been influenced a little bit by um, joining the North American Bluebird Society. Uh, and that was after the Audubon, uh, starting the Audubon chapter. And I, I would get literature from uh, the Bluebird Society uh telling how different people collected data some of it i thought was superfluous and ignored it some of it i i kept um i think basically just uh, uh to record what i see in there and um it just got into a sort of a routine where i where I just uh, collect data on the nest uh, building, uh, egg laying, hatching, and uh, and fledging. And of course, I I got into banding the birds, and and that uh, developed a, a desire to. Uh, find out more about the birds, how long they live and where they go uh, when they leave here, and how if they stay here all winter long or what. A, a, a lot of people talk about citizen science these days, but the concept was not nearly as well known as uh, I'm sure it was when you started your Bluebird project back in the late 70s. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering if you were even aware of this term did you you know were you thinking of yourself as a citizen science back then or no I, I, I don't have I don't recall hearing that until maybe the last 15 years or so um, and then a citizen scientist just uh, how much of a scientist is he um is he into it deeply, collecting a lot of data, or is it someone who thinks he knows a lot about something and and uh, uh, really doesn't uh, give the exact or real uh, a definition of what he sees? Um, so many times people get an idea in their mind that that uh, 
something's got to be done this way because the bird's doing this and one thing or another. It works in uh, uh, where we put human terms into the animal's activities. Mm -hmm. And that's not right. We just want to observe the animal and see what he's doing, not in our terms, but what the, what the terms of the animal. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all, all grades of citizen scientists. It's like I uh, used to tell some of my students in community ed uh, about an expert birder. And my definition is an expert birder is one of two persons who the one person knows a little bit more about birds than the other. So he's an expert on on birds to that lesser knowledgeable person. Sure. So an expert, he is in the eyes of some, but not in the eyes of... of uh, the college degree. Right, or the person who knows a little bit more than, yeah. than him, right? <laughs> yeah. If, so when I when I get in a, a group, I usually keep my mouth shut and my ears open. I don't want to tell people how ignorant I am. <laughs> Somebody's out bound to know more than me, so I, I, I don't blurb too much. Yeah. And I, I think it's also important to mention here that, you know, the North American Bluebird Society sort of developed this model for citizen science programs, you know, a, a long, long time ago, you know, before this was sort of uh, uh, this important sort of catchphrase. Um, I mean, do you think there's anything that these newer citizen science projects could learn from by looking at this older model that was uh, set up back in the 70s by the North American Bluebird Society? Well, it doesn't hurt to review what's done in the past. Mm -hmm. um, you got people educated in in cons con conservation, conserving the bluebirds, and they're also concerned about conserving all cavity nesters or helping them along. Uh, and they have guidelines on how to go about collecting data <clears throat> yeah when you talk about citizen scientists working at the computer gathering data I just feel like that's more of a stenographer's job <laughs> uh, tell somebody to collect all the data that pertains to this so you get on there and you start collecting it now is that scientific or is it just doing a mechanical thing um, but on the other hand uh, is it scientific that I go out and and uh, ban birds and record what I see or is that just a mechanical thing I'm doing is just for my own ego <laughs> yeah I don't know maybe the lesson is just that like you should you know, if, if, if you're going to be involved in a citizen science project, I mean, it it should be something that you care about, right? I mean, yeah. um, and I think that is sort of, from my perspective, that's what makes your citizen science project stand out is the fact that, you know, regardless of what your motivations are, 
Um, yeah. You were really, really interested in this project to the, you know, uh, enough so that you stuck with it for over 35 years. And that is what gives value to your data set for, you know, from the perspective of these other, these outside people that are looking at what you're doing. Um, so maybe that's, you know, just I, the importance of choosing something to get involved in that, that you really care about on a yeah. deep level. Well, this nest box project um, there's a few people like myself who started years and years ago and stuck with it but there's so many people who they lose interest and uh, the project is just short term they don't have data that can be tied to anything it you know a if you do it for 20 or 30 years, the whole thing sort of ties in together. But if you're going to put a nest box out there and then quit in three or four years, well, what have you accomplished scientifically? It, sure, you've helped uh, provide nesting places for the birds. But uh, scientifically, what have you contributed, or what have you contributed to the scientific community? Mm -hmm. One of the important things that citizen science can contribute to, like the greater scientific community, I think, is is the creation of these these long term data sets. You know, um, that's. I mean, I, I to me that seems like the greatest value that that your data set has is the fact that it spans, you know, across this. Uh, 35 year time period which allows us to go back and sort of look at some of these you know uh, things that you're monitoring and see how you know how they've changed over time or if they've changed over time yeah. anyways I, I, I kind of want to I, I, I want to talk about just how your bluebird trails are, are doing uh, so far this year they're doing about as normal as can be considering the weather uh, perhaps with the Warm spring, the birds got started a little bit earlier, and that means that maybe there'll be more second broods when they get through. When the bluebird gets through with the first brood, there's a short period of time, maybe ten days or two weeks, where the nest lies fallow, and then they'll go back and start a second brood. Well, that's an opportunity for the house wren to come in and take over the nest box. It might be that since the bluebirds finished their first brood early, the uh, house wrens had not already found a nesting site, and they uh, would move into these vacated bluebird boxes. Well, that's a thing for some scientists to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that um, that we had a particularly warm winter and spring, and now into the early summer this year. Um, and uh, uh, you mentioned that you had a few uh, sort of unusually early nests. Um, yeah. And, I mean, this sort of... I guess, brings up this topic of climate change, right? And this is something that, you know, uh, most 
most of the folks that, that at least that I've talked to, um, who have an interest in your 35 year data set, um, they, that's usually what they cite as like the reason they're interested is, mm-hmm. um, is because, you know, there's potential to, to use this data to look at how birds are responding to, to, to climate change over time. Um, so I, I guess I'm just wondering if this is something you've thought about or, you know, um, yeah, uh, and, and any kind of thoughts that, that you might have on, on that or any, any change, sort of anecdotal changes that you've seen. It boils down to the fact that uh, uh, if we have a prolonged change, it's going to be a, a change in the production of, of food for birds, mm-hmm. insects. And uh, a worldwide climate change, that affects the ice caps. Mm-hmm. And we're losing, we're losing ice up north. But uh, um, I think the humans have a lot to do with this change, and it's probably more of an abrupt change uh, than before human civilization. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The very first story that that you talked about, you talked about being uh, three or four years old and and moving from California to Idaho, um, which... So that means you've been living in Idaho for um, for almost ninety years, which yes. is which is a long time. Um, I guess I'm wondering, like, if there, I mean, are, are there any changes in these ecosystems that that you've noticed um, over this time? Uh, any anything distinctive that you can point to? That um, no, just uh, an increase in human population. Yeah. <laughs> that, <laughs> well, that's pretty distinctive, right? <laughs> that's that's. That's really it. Uh, the more people we get, the the worse the environment is. We used to have fruit orchards all over the valley down there. Now you are hard pressed to find a fruit tree in somebody's backyard. Right. And we're covering the ground with asphalt. And the more people we get, the more of uh, that negative uh, stuff goes on. Well, it's at least good to see that um, we've still got a lot of bluebirds out here, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, despite the fact that, you know, uh, that we are seeing these changes in climate and we are seeing, um, I, I guess, the fact that we're seeing these bluebirds nesting earlier in the season, um, I mean, that means that they're adapting, right, to these changes. Uh, yeah. It seems like an indicator that that they have that ability to to uh, sort of adapt to um, changes in climate from year to year. You know, if it's a warmer winter and a warm spring, then they're gonna they're gonna get started earlier. And as you said, that you know gives them a chance to gives them more time to um, to have that hopefully successful second brood. Um, I've got wild turkeys at the place that. They're almost like tame turkeys because people have fed them and they've adapted to human activity. Right. Um, I've got birds that practically eat out of my hand. I have had them eating out of my hand. Uh, They've adapted to my presence. If I step outside in the morning, 
uh, I'll have turkeys look me over and then advance towards me. They expect to be fed. <laughs> <laughs> I was out on the Bluebird Trail here a year ago, uh-huh. and some guy come to a screeching halt. He jumped out of his pickup and ran over to the car where I was setting and cheaping notes. He said, I saw you on television. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's funny. (laughs) Yeah. Yep, you're famous now. (laughs) I I guess, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, when I'm out with the people that knows me, they uh, introduced me as a bluebird man to to uh, strangers. Now, when I show that film to somebody, uh, I have my tongue in my cheek. How are they going to react to it? Mm-hmm. But it seems like it's always positive. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, that's awesome. That's good to hear. <laughs> At, at my age, you've accumulated quite a bit of knowledge. But then what good is that knowledge if you can't share it with somebody? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you uh, sharing that knowledge that you've accumulated. Good to chat, as always. All right, that was our conversation with Bluebird Man Al Larson. I love that story that he shared about being stopped by someone while out on the Bluebird Trail who had recognized him from our film. It's clear that Al loves this attention. He shows it in the most modest way possible. But it's just wonderful as a filmmaker to see him get the attention that he deserves for his commitment to this project. Now, even though Al is literally being stopped in the street by admirers, I'm sure there are people out there listening who haven't yet seen the film, Bluebird Man, so we will provide a link to watch the film in the show notes, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC31. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC31. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. The Humidors.